0: Hey, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or perhaps good night. Wherever you are right now, thanks for listening. I'm excited to share our first interview of Season 5 today with Jeb Redwine. As a young scout, Jeb looked up to the older boys in his troop and dreamed of one day going to the elusive Philmont Scout Ranch. After trekking in 2012, he began on staff in 2015 and worked six seasons total. He quickly found his forte in the conservation department. On work crew in 2016, perseverance was the name of the game. He excelled and went on to become a work crew foreman. In that role, Jeb appreciated the autonomy and opportunity to experience the benefits of successful team delegation. We chat about behind-the-scenes cons things, including what exactly work crews do on their 10-day runs in the backcountry as well as the importance of building positive relationships with backcountry staff. In 2018, Jeb was hired to be the work crew coordinator. When the Ute Park fire hit, he and three others were suddenly tasked with managing not 20, but 150 people, teaching them the skills they had just learned themselves. The perseverance and delegation Jeb had experienced in his previous years on staff came into action that summer. Jeb also met his girlfriend at Philmont, and we laughed together while discussing the terrors of breaking the ice and having those first interactions with someone you admire. Today, Jeb is the business owner of Red Wine Wood Design. While studying in college to become a mechanical engineer, Jeb would seek out woodworking as a way to provide some mental relief and creativity. Soon, folks started commissioning pieces from him, and he found himself operating a successful woodworking business. Jeb's philosophy behind red wine wood design is to embrace the character, story, and flaws of each piece he designs. This philosophy is inspired by a Japanese concept of finding beauty in the imperfections of life, celebrating the cracks, crevices, and all other marks that time, weather, and love leave behind. So check out his unique items, including wooden bowls, pipes, jewelry, and more by following Red Wine Wood Design on Instagram, Facebook, or by clicking the link in the show notes. Thanks again for being here. Let's hike on. I'm here today with Jeb Redwine, and Jeb's coming from Alamosa, Colorado. I am, of course, in my basement closet in Iowa, as always. Just really excited to have you on the show today, Jeb. So how are you doing?
1: Well, I'm doing great, Caitlin. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's exciting to take part.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's going to be a fun one today. Um, but let's take it way back. Okay. When did you like? Did you grow up in scouting, or when did you first hear about scouting and Philmont Scout Ranch?
1: I got into scouting. I guess I would have been a bear scout. That actually aggravated me a lot. I wanted my tiger, but, you know, can't go back in time. But I got into scouts and then ended up joining a troop in my hometown. And every year, the older boys would go out on track. And I can remember being little Johnny Scout looking up at him like, dang, that looks uh, that looks cool, man. I want to do that. And eventually my t- time came, which was in 2012, I think. Yeah, yeah June – Eleventh, yeah. I ended up coming on a track which was super cool. It was it was an awesome experience, yeah.
0: Did you like hear about Philmont your whole life?
1: No, it it kind of came out of the blue.
0: Yeah, was it just like at one of your meetings one day, like a troop meeting or
1: yeah, pretty actually funny story about that. Pretty much it was um I just knew it was something that the older boys did. I didn't know what they did, I didn't know where it was. I just knew that they went to Philmont every now and then. And my dad told me that uh, I would be going on a trek next summer with my brother. And I was actually really upset about that because I wanted to go to council camp. And all my friends were going there. And, you know, I was going to miss out on council camp. And I was, I was pretty sour about that for a while, which is completely ridiculous because, you know, <laughs> tr- trade a week for all the months leading up to train and getting ready for it. And then the actual event, like council camp, what was I thinking?
0: I mean, when you don't know, you don't know, right? You don't know yeah. what's out there. But, um, well, I'm Fact. glad you I'm glad you made it out. And any highlights from your trek, your trek in 2012?
1: Probably my time in the Vibe at all. Like, that was my, my first experience with just schwacking around and not really having a trail, which was super cool. And there were also coyotes that were going absolutely nuts when we were staying at Whiteman Vega which I, I was pretty stoked about it. I mean, they're they're not super big. I mean, I figured I could kick one if they, if they came up or something. So it was neat.
0: <laughs> Coyotes, they're known as the trickster, I believe. In, uh, are they? I think so. I studied Native American history and indi- indigenous studies in college back in the day, and I believe they're known as the trickster. So um, that's,
1: oh, that's cool, that you, cool
0: that you got to hear them up there. Yeah. When you were on track, did you know, like, I want to come back and work here?
1: Not at first. It took a couple days before that set in, but I was pretty positive about it. I mean, everyone, all the staffers seemed to be having so much fun. And i had never experienced anything like that before. Like, I'm, I'm from Georgia, which is just polar opposite culturally and also in regards to climate. So, yeah, I mean, I knew I wanted to come back pretty quick. It took a while, but made it happen.
0: Yeah. So from 2012 on Trek, 2015 was your first summer on staff. You were a program counselor at Cimarron Cito. How was your first summer? Was it everything you dreamed of?
1: Honestly, <laughs> it was a mixed bag. I, I worked with some super cool people and I made friendships that last to this day. And that was neat. But um, being based out of one location kind of drug on after a while like doing the same thing every day. I I have the attention span of a squirrel. So <laughs> I and I'm super high energy so I got to ping pong around and do stuff. I mean it was an awesome experience. I'm super glad I did it. But like one once one season in the backcountry kind of did it for me. I wanted to try other stuff after that.
0: Yeah. That's good to know. It's it that's good like self-awareness. So then you did move on to uh, working in the conservation department. You worked
1: sure
0: did. Um, uh, work crew 2016, work crew foreman 2017, and on and on, uh, coordinator, and then camper cons coordinator, which I don't even know what that means. So we'll get to that. But um, <laughs> so 2016, you returned on work crew, mm-hmm. uh, which probably suited you better because you got to go all over the place. So yeah, any takeaways from that summer?
1: Yeah perseverance is key it was at that point the most physically brutal thing i had ever done like i I had seen all the guys um on work crew charlie and work crew papa in 2015 they came through cedo a lot and it looked like a ton of fun but they were always just filthy and absolutely destroyed physically but me being I, i think i was 20 when i got on work crew Sierra. Yeah. Being a young 20 year old, I looked at all that and I was like, ah, that's not a big deal. I can do that. But the first run and this, this stayed true for the rest of my time on work crew. I just spent the entire time thinking, oh my God, what have I done? The, the physical adjustment from a sedentary lifestyle to that is drastic (laughs) to say the least.
0: Do you recall what work crew training was like that summer, like before you went out?
1: So we did all cons, which is for for those who aren't in the conservation department, just this big get together where we build trail for a couple of days. And that's fun. It's like an introductory period. And then when you break off for work crew training, they give you all the big packs and stuff and everyone starts unloading food and unloading tools. And at first the pile isn't that bad. You're just like, oh, that's. that's some stuff I can just I got room for that but then it grows and then it keeps growing and suddenly it's just this insurmountable mound of garbage that you have to somehow stuff into a sack and then somehow put that on your body and carry it which we (laughs) did so we took the, the massive pile of garbage and then who was our coordinator that year Seth and Jerry yeah Seth and Jerry was like all right let's go And then they just drug us through the mud for like three days, which was fun. But character building, in a word. Yeah, we we build character.
0: I was mostly in the backcountry. So uh, I remember working at N and Fish Camp. And uh, those two summers stick out where there was always a work crew either with us or coming through. And Mm -hmm. I do remember thinking, like, those are some of the most badass people at the ranch. (laughs) Like, it's just an incredible... Uh, effort and job that you guys are doing out there. So kudos to everyone who's ever worked work crew conservation department. You must have enjoyed the, maybe you're a glutton for punishment because you enjoyed it. I am sure it's rewarding as well, but um, you did come back in uh, 2017 as a work crew foreman. So were you excited for that promotion? Were you nervous? What was that like?
1: Dude, I was so stoked. It It had been like, I didn't know that I wanted to start moving in the direction of leadership prior to that point. And I think a lot of that had to do with the environment I was in. I was always just kind of put into the the range of a follower and not given much opportunity to stretch my legs. But that kind of happened naturally in 2016 when I was on WorkCrew Sierra. So to turn around and have my own crew in my own region was it was just such an opportunity i was so stoked
0: what were what crew were you in what region were you in
1: i was on work crew charlie or i was the foreman of work crew charlie in 2017 so we had all the all the central country and it it was super cool cuz like you sit with your coordinators or and your your adc or the, the people that are in charge and you write out an itinerary as the work crew foreman tell them what you're going to do and then you leave and then that's it. Like you don't hear anything from them. They don't hear anything from you. And then you stumble back into base 10 days later and they ask how it went. And like your, your check-ins with leadership are few and far between. And there's a lot of autonomy that comes in that situation, which I've really enjoyed.
0: Gives you, like you said, that opportunity to, um, to, to lead, to have a chance to really lead and be delegated to and then also delegate to your work crew staff staff members and and work as a team and all that jazz so that's really cool Mm -hmm. to hear it's similar in the backcountry but I feel like we are visited a little more frequently but because of the nature of the job yeah work crew you guys are out there and everyone else is at base camp so you know I think a lot of people see work crews come into camp and they're filthy and they're tired and they're hungry but what are what are some behind the scenes things that people don't see
1: a lot of digging (laughs) Like 90% of our not hiking time is spent digging. And <laughs> I just have a, a still to this day a complete mental map of the best and worst places to dig all across the ranch. And just to go into a little detail, fish camp I'm, I'm saying this because you work there best yeah. dirt on the ranch. We can get a P2B dug in like less than 30 minutes. Which is awesome because yeah. on the top of Mount Phillips, we dug for two and a half hours, and the hole was only a foot deep. Yeah. So that's that's like <laughs> behind the scenes as far as the work goes. But another part of the thing um, is relations, because the the backcountry camps are really your support line out there, and if you have a bad relationship with a backcountry camp, well, you're kind of up the creek without a paddle. Anytime you're in that region. So I, I at least at the beginning of the season, and this was kind of passed down me, to me by my foreman, but made a very clear set of expectations for how we were supposed to behave in camps. Because, you know, there's like stigmas back and forth, inter- interdepartmental competition and whatnot. And I don't like that. So, and believe it or not, trying to clean up a little before coming into a camp <laughs> Like as bad as as bad as uh work crew guys have looked coming in, they looked so much worse like five minutes before they got to your camp.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that comes to mind when I think of work crew is like um the bravery in in uh how do I want to word this? Like you guys are brave eaters. Like I've seen work crew <laughs> eat like different oh, types yeah. of Meat if, uh, that doesn't look like meat anymore, <laughs> like <laughs> bacon. I mean, you guys are brave eaters for for those of you all, like carrying that food around for ten I days.
1: Think, I think brave might be a mis misrepresentation. <laughs> I would I would replace that with foolish. But you're, abs- <laughs> I thought it was like fine when I was on work crew. But you're absolutely right. Like there was one time at uh, hunting lodge, I forgot a pack of pork chops in my bag. And I didn't learn that until I was on North Fork Seto doing corridor, pulled it out of the bag, immediately started projectile vomiting everywhere. And then when we got back to hunting lodge, I had to throw them away. I warned everyone, but still I cleared out that entire like meeting area in front of the lodge, (laughs) just walking the chops to the, uh, the trash can. Yeah. Like (laughs) meeting a pack's not a good idea, man.
0: (laughs) Meet in a pack. No go.
1: (laughs) I'll pass Um, next time.
0: And just to back up a tiny bit, like for people who didn't work in conservation or for listeners in general, work yeah. crews are out there for 10 days at a time and and your main job is what?
1: Depends on the crew. I guess you could boil it down to backcountry maintenance or infrastructure. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just call it infrastructure. But the way in which you achieve infrastructure is different depending on the crew. Projects crews, they take care of building bridges and cribbing structures, which are just those... Like log piles on hillsides that hold the the dirt up. And then regional crews get stuck with um, like campsite maintenance. So they're digging the P2Bs, hanging bear lines, taking snags down, clearing trail, doing corridor, working on trail. Like the routine maintenance, I guess, is, is what regional crews are responsible for.
0: Yeah, super important work that um, we could not have uh, all the participants that, you know, Philmont has without that maintenance uh, being done, that infra- infrastructure, like you said. So you were foreman in 2017, and then you came back in 2018, again, with another promotion as a work crew coordinator. So how many coordinators are there?
1: For work crew or in the conservation department?
0: I guess work crew coordinator. Is that one person? Okay. or
1: yeah. yeah, it's just one.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, they. you have uh, the work crew ADC or the, the associate director of conservation. That's broken down. You have The ADC for the conservationists, which is now called camper conservationists. And yeah, it's, it's confusing. It's been a recent change. Um, And then an ADC for work crew, ADC for the OATC, all that. So you're as the coordinator, you're like the second for work crew, kind of the field leadership while the ADC stays in the office and uh, suffers behind a computer.
0: Fair enough. So in 2018 you were work crew coordinator and so you were able to be out in the field still in that role?
1: Well, we all were that summer.
0: Oh That's, well. Uh... Oh shoot. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Minor detail, 2018, Ute Park Fire. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like for you guys?
1: Um confusing and extremely stressful. I was 22 and had signed on to manage 20 people who were coming to Philmont intending to do that kind of work. And then suddenly myself and I think three others had like 150 people to instruct on how to do something that I personally was learning how to do as I went. So confusion. Yeah. Confusion's the theme that yeah. summer.
0: And the thing you were teaching that summer then was the TSI, I assume, the timber stand improvement?
1: Yes, it was. I learned how to use a chainsaw and then a week later started teaching other people how to do it, which was an interesting experience to say the least. I mean, I barely figured it out myself at that point.
0: That was a summer of, uh, what do they say? Scramble, be scramble be flexible. I think that's a ranger uh, motto, but... Whatever it is, it applies. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you didn't get to have, um, you didn't get to experience the worker coordinator role like like it typically would have been due to the fire. But typically, is that role out in the field?
1: Yeah, you're doing a lot of logistical support and in-field leadership. So say there's a, a we'll use a cribbing structure, for example. Say there's a hillside that's sliding down. Someone's got to lead that project up. Now, the foreman may have an idea of what's going what's going on, but the coordinator has to come in and I guess mastermind the project. So you do a lot of hands on stuff with that, but also cover logistics like delivering P2Bs and tools and dropping food where it needs to go. So it's it's a good it's a good position for someone like me who doesn't like being in the one in one place because you'll scramble all over for the entire summer long trying to keep up with everybody.
0: Since you didn't get to do that role in 2018, essentially, uh, did you stay all summer? Just curious. I, I did.
1: Good yeah, for you. I, well, I, I wanted to, and I didn't have too much going on at home. It was either uh, go back and cut down trees at home or just do it there. So I did it there.
0: I'm glad you stayed. And for all those who stayed even a short amount of time or the whole summer, everyone, I know, all hands on deck that year in 2018. So thank you guys. So then, you did come back in 2021 as the Camper Cons coordinator. Which is, explain that one to me again.
1: <laughs> okay, so the Camper Cons coordinator, similar role, but with the conservationists. Um, if if anyone doesn't know, the conservationists are actively building trail and now doing fuel reduction, but they're based out of a single backcountry camp, and the coordinator in that role. Just bounces around from site to site, checks in, makes sure everyone's doing okay, answers questions, helps work, and uh, keeps everyone supplied with tools and that sort of thing. You, uh, you're you kind of Mr. Fix-It or Mrs. Fix-It, Miss the Fix-It person. We'll go with that. <laughs> you you yeah. fix problems as a coordinator so that everyone else can keep keep rolling on.
0: Did you enjoy that summer? Did you enjoy that role?
1: I did. It was. I met some really awesome people. The other coordinators with me, Ann and Sid, were awesome. And we had a lot of fun bouncing around. Sometimes we combine our site visits because we had, um, I had four sites. The others had a a similar number, but they were in the same region sometimes. So it was just a a check-in party, pretty much. Throw all the junk in the back of the truck, roll out and come back late. It was fun.
0: Where were all the sites in 2021? Can you remember? Or can you remember your four?
1: We had 10 of them. That was, hold on. Oh man, this is going to be hard. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'm, gonna I'm okay. going to do this. I'm going to do this. <laughs> so we had forestry up at Ring Place. And then we had a trail site at Poneil. We had a stream restoration site at Indian Riding's and Metcalf. I had a trail site at Poblano. And then going south from there, we had forestry at Miners Park. Forestry at uh, N. forestry at, man, I can't remember now. Maybe a pet No, man, I You're, thought I could do that. You were doing, <laughs> really, doing good. really good.
0: You were that we can call that good. I mean, that no, was we a had a trail
1: site at crater lake too. I'm going to cap it off with that. I'm missing okay. too.
0: It'll come to you right when we're done with the interview.
1: <laughs> I know I'm going to, I'm going to be laying awake at night thinking, shoot, I, I almost no, had that.
0: No, it's good. It's fun to share it just kind of for oral history and just, um, I guess why I'm asking the question is so people can conceptualize, you know, the Philmont map in their mind, and then like just kind of get a get an idea of of how active conservation is across the board and all the work mm-hmm. you guys are doing. So thanks for running down that list.
1: I, I just remembered the last two. By the way, okay, Baldy Skyline and Apache Springs. I knew there, I could it, do is. It. there yeah. it is.
0: There it is. Awesome. Um, you also stayed on uh, that fall of 2021 as the conservation shop coordinator. I assume that's a base camp job.
1: It is, yeah. My priorities started shifting a little bit from uh, being active in the backcountry to wanting to be closer to base camp. I started a little business that I was running out of a trailer, so I would do that in the evening, and also needed access to the tools. So, I it was it was a pretty sweet job. I got there's a, a PA system in the con's pavilion. That You you can hook up your phone and play music and whatnot, so I would just sit there and tinker on chainsaws and other stuff all day long while listening to music, which was really cool, with the exception of me being the only one in the shop. So the the crews would go out and cut um, all day and then roll back into base camp, and I would be sitting there like, people, please speak to me. (laughs) I've spoken to no one for the last (laughs) 20 hours. It feels like I need interaction.
0: Yeah. Fall is a different beast at Filma. You know, there's less people and it's a good thing. Uh, But yeah, you do need that interaction at the end of the day. Just for fun, what are some of your favorite artists or music that you jam out to? Dude.
1: So I've I've always been a metalhead and always will be, I think. There's this band called Fit for an Autopsy, which sounds awful and it's nitty. (laughs) They probably think it is, but I really enjoyed that. There's this other, there's a, a rapper called Kai Straw that I listen to as well. He's very eloquent and, cool. uh, and inspires one to pontificate the finer meanings of life through his lyrics, which I enjoyed. <laughs> and then for a for the last one to tip it off, um, Slipknot. I only recently got into Slipknot by, I mean, the last two years, but we were playing that all the time in the cache. And then a couple of us actually went to Albuquerque to, to see him, which was awesome. And also horrifying because I had had broken my (laughs) ankle. Well, it would have been fine, but I I broke my ankle rock climbing earlier in the season. So I cobbled together this Frankenstein piratey peg leg thing out of literal garbage. So I could move, but my ankle was not healed. So I'm at a, a Slipknot concert on a freaking peg leg, just trying not to die. (laughs) <laughs> As the uh, the guys that went with me are like shoving the crowd back and trying to keep everyone out of the way. It, it was it was really cool. I would never do that again.
0: <laughs> One and done. Yeah, that's awesome. You'll have to send me a picture of that contraption. I will. <laughs> Before we transition into what you're doing today, in your experience at Philmont on staff, was there someone or a group of people that really mentored you, inspired you, and uh, grew you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Swinging it back to work crew, but uh, the guys that were in the season in 2015, they were super open and encouraging. And I had grown up doing that kind of labor back home and was already pretty well suited for it. But they were just super encouraging and telling me that I, I should try that out. And then I did. And that summer, like Wade Geisel, he was one of the guys that was on uh, work crew Charlie. He was talking me up or being really supportive over the course of 2016 and telling me I should come back as a foreman the next year. And the same goes for, I'm just going to like rattle the the four names off right now, but we got Wade Geisel, who was incredible. Uh, Gerald Ray Short, who is, if, if you know him, he's like one of the funnest dudes out there, super hardworking, massive personality, Seth Eldridge, for the same reasons, Alex Carlidge and then Joe Robinson, who was my foreman in 2016. Those guys really helped to transform me from someone who was young, insecure, and completely lacked confidence into someone who feels like I, I can overcome challenges. Like it, It's going to be hard, but I can do it. And they did that th- simply by being encouraging. And saying that they believed I could handle stuff. And like that's I, I really don't think they know how much of a influence that had on me and continues to
0: have on me. Speaking of learning how to overcome challenges, uh, would you say you had a challenge that you did overcome at Philmont specifically?
1: Many. It's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be hard yeah, to same. narrate through that. We'll we'll go back to the most recent one that I can think of, and that was the peg leg fiasco. So I have been a rock climber for many years now. It's, it's something I enjoy. And I went bouldering nearby to Philmont alone because I'm stupid. And I brought one crash pad to try a problem that really needed three. Long story short, I did not make it to the top of that problem. What I did instead was plunge down to the ground 15 feet below and break my heel, which would have been fine and dandy, except there was no cell reception in this canyon and I had half a liter of water and there was no one, literally no one for like 50 miles. So I crawled out of the canyon, got back to my truck, drove myself back to the infirmary at Philmont. They took care of me and I still wanted a job. Cause I didn't have anywhere else to go for the fall and my girlfriend was out there. So the challenge I had to overcome was how can I keep my job while not being able to walk, which is where the peg leg came from. Did the, did uh, the coordinator job on crutches for a few days. That was no good. And then over the course of the next three weeks, I just kind of Frankensteined it back together, which I thought was the entirety of the challenge. It ended up not being that way. As it turns out, your body's only designed to support your body and that in a, an even load. <laughs> so this peg leg weighs about 30 pounds probably, and it's not super cushy. So over the course of the season, my joints, they just started giving out like every day was painful, but I, I wanted to be doing what I was doing. So I kind of just gritted my teeth and pushed through it to the end of the season that's, that's probably the most significant challenge in recent history. I I could bring up more, but you know, other stories for different days, you know,
0: a physical challenge, a physical injury very quickly becomes, you know, a mental challenge and, and can, uh, really bring you down if you don't have people around you to lift you up. Um, Mm -hmm. or like you said, if you don't have, uh, the grit to get through. So uh, good for you, and I'm glad you were able to keep your job. Hopefully, you're <laughs> all healed and everything's yeah, good. I'm,
1: I'm doing good, Finn. Uh, I started climbing again recently. I'm right. terrified of falling. It's it's a big problem. Well, here here's the thing. This was the second climbing related break on the same ankle within a year.
0: Oh, oh dang!
1: Yeah, so yeah, I don't I don't want to do that again. Yeah, if at all possible, I'm going to avoid it.
0: That I I would agree with that. (laughs) But at least you got back on the horse, so to speak. You're out there climbing again. I don't know if you know um, Annie Anderson. Yeah, I recently interviewed her and she was telling me about how she got into climbing. And I because I watch the things you guys do, you bouldering people. And I'm like, this is nuts. It just it's it's crazy. It's it's very cool to see you guys work those problems. So you mentioned your girlfriend. Did you meet her at Philmont?
1: I did. I'm, I met her uh, this summer, actually, back in May. Nice. And I was absolutely terrified to talk to her. I won't <laughs> even lie. I was like most of the time. I keep it. I, I can keep it pretty cool when I'm talking to people. Um, pretty pretty cool when I'm talking to ladies. I, oh, I say that I appear cool on the outside. I'm I'm always terrified. But uh, <laughs> with her, the terror kind of peaked. So it was, I, I was sitting in the dining hall. We were still eating at the PTC side because it was early season. Just like, come on, Jeff, you got to do this. Just <laughs> take the plunge. And then I took the plunge and it worked out. So uh, go me. I don't want to do that again, if possible. <laughs> I hate, hate breaking my eyes. It's so bad.
0: Yeah. I think it's fair that you don't, you don't want to break any more bones and you don't want to go through a, another, uh, Breaking the ice, or break up, or what have you. So hopefully, all that goes well for both of you
1: guys. I'm I'm pretty optimistic, man. I, I think it will. I'm stoked.
0: Good. I'm optimistic for you too. Well, thank you. <laughs> and you guys are are you both living in Alamosa right now?
1: Yeah, we are. We we found a nice spot, um, right near the sand dunes, which which is nice because long distance is hard and all that. And that's that's actually kind of why we ended up in Alamosa because I knew I liked her a lot and didn't want to end things, but felt like long distance is so hard. Yeah, like Anyone who's, who's dated at Philmont before you, you meet this incredible, awesome person in an environment that is so different from real life that when you, you get back to real life, it's kind of hard to keep that sort of thing alive, regardless of whether you have a genuine connection or not. So I didn't really want to repeat that cycle. And this was her first, first time on staff this summer so she had not done that cycle before but uh we, we just kind of decided to not go long distance and that is how we ended up in Alamosa.
0: Well you guys picked a beautiful spot I mean the San Luis Valley and um you're close to Philmont it's probably just very inspiring and hopefully you're enjoying it. <music> I believe that you studied engineering. Are you doing I any did. engineering work today or are you just doing your um, your business, which we should talk about?
1: I, I mean, I'm not doing engineering professionally. I do work that would qualify as engineering um, in terms of problem solving. Like engineering is just creative problem solving. Everybody who is an engineer, they want to blow it up like, oh, I'm an engineer. My brain is so large, it's pulsating out of my skull. It's like, well, okay, you pass calculus and you know basic physics. Good for you. Not to smear on engineers at all. Um, (laughs) That's not my intent. I just, anyone can do it, man. You have these farmers, these farmers with very limited formal educations who are keeping a vast fleet of machines alive and stuff like that, which is a really roundabout way of me saying, yeah, I'm kind of doing engineering, but not for anyone professionally.
0: My my grandfather was a farmer, and I always yeah. remember. Yeah, I remember as a kid, you know, seeing the like massive combine and his shop full of like every tool and everything was always kind of like greasy and oily. And I always just remember thinking, like, how does he know how to fix all of this and and do all of this? And um, uh, it's a good segue because he also had at the very back of the Quonset building, uh, he had a um a wood shop oh. and. I remember, like, we weren't allowed to go back there because there were sharp tools and mm-hmm. saw, whatever. And, um, but we would, like, open the door and it would creak. And um, there was a window back there. And something about the wood shop for me, like, wood shops are this place of kind of like the sawdust smell. And it's kind of always like a shit show, like, it's a big mess. Um, That's
1: a fact. <laughs> It's, it's not even organized chaos. It's yeah. just straight up chaos.
0: Yeah, that I always wanted to know more and go in there and I would like pick up tiny shavings of things and it just kind of seemed kind of magical. So I don't know what your wood shop is like, Jeb, but I know that, Similar, you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know that you probably spend a lot of time in there because you um, run a business called Red Wine Wood Design. And I'd love for you to tell me about the origin of it and uh, yeah, what it is that you do.
1: Okay, the origin, I was born a long time, just kidding. No, as I was going through uh, college, training to be an engineer, m- mechanical engineer by discipline, um, my brain hurt a lot. I was homeschooled and didn't dive too deeply into math or sciences. So in college, I I had to learn calculus on the fly, and I had to learn physics on the fly. I had never encountered anything like that before. Uh, suffice it to say my head felt like it was going to pop and I needed a creative outlet so I had some tools that were kind of hanging out in my parents garage and I gradually pieced together kind of a rudimentary wood shop Mm -hmm. and just started making stuff Uh, my dad got into pipe smoking around this time or several years prior so my um, some of my first projects were actually just pipes which I still have some of them they're they're not very good but you know it was a step in it was a step in the door yeah so i was doing that and i gradually started getting better didn't think too much of it like whatever every, not that good but then people started coming up to me asking if i could make them things and for the longest while i just did it for free because i didn't think i was very good but i had a chessboard commission um summer of 2020 yeah it was summer of 2020 that I did got paid pretty good for that thing and I had graduated back in May so I was done with Georgia I needed to leave Georgia and get out of there and go see other things so I did the chessboard to fund whatever it was I was going to do and once I had the money in hand I settled on moving into a truck with one of my best friends who also graduated engineering that semester so we hopped into the truck I drove out to Colorado, started climbing, which was a lot of fun. Our plan was just to kind of bounce around, climb, look for jobs, find a place we wanted to call home, which was going swimmingly until about 10 days into the trip whenever I had a bad climbing fall, which broke my ankle, round one of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that one actually resulted in me hopping two miles down a scree field on one leg to get to the truck. Suffice it to say, the, the trip was canned. I had to come home, which was emotionally crushing. I absolutely hated Georgia at the time. Um, Was really trying to run from a lot of things that had taken place in my past, rather than dealing with them, unfortunately. But, you know, here's this injury, got to go home. There's literally nowhere else I can go. I can try to heal in the back of a truck for three months or... I can go home with my tail tucked between my legs and take care of it. I say that it felt like I had my tail tucked, but it it was really the best thing that could have happened to me because I, I wasn't going to sit there and allow circumstance to dictate my, um, I wouldn't say future, but yeah, we'll just go with future. That word, that word works. So got home wallowed in self-pity for about two weeks and then said, screw this, I'm going to do something and crutched down to, the, down to the shop, busted out my tools and every day for the next two months, like between 12 to 16 hours a day, no joke, I started working in there and trying to, to hone what I was doing. And eventually I started generating a bit of an online presence. People started commissioning things from me and it's that's that's what I've been doing for the last year or so. It's grown a lot. It, I still have no idea what I'm doing. Like, there's a lot of things to learn with running a business aside from just doing the actual work. You got to do marketing, and you got to do sales and finance. And
0: I don't know what I'm doing either. We're like, I'm, you're speaking yeah. my language. Like, I hear you. Yeah. It's like, yeah. What
1: are you doing with your life, Jeb or Caitlin? I don't know, <laughs> man. I'm figuring it out one day at a time. Out.
0: Some definite growth opportunity and beauty in um in trying and failing and trying and failing and then finally getting it
1: it's living with that level of uncertainty like when when you're paying your own bills through something that you're creating or doing like if something goes wrong you're screwed and that is just that uh, uh, a sense of insecurity that you have to come to peace with you have to accept failure not everything I've done is going to work out. Like I lost um, twenty five hundred dollars last month. That's a yeah. hard lesson to learn, but yeah. now I know not to make those mistakes and failures. Not that uh, not as scary as it was before.
0: What would you say is your philosophy around um, red wine wood design?
1: Ooh, that is an excellent question. Uh, <laughs> the philosophy. That I've developed, my mom actually introduced me to it, but it's, it's a Japanese concept of wabi-sabi, which essentially means beauty and imperfection. Um, I had spent so much of my life trying to be a perfectionist and ultimately falling short. Cause there's no way you can do that. And right. just, just absolutely destroying myself mentally for not being able to live up to my own self-imposed expectations. And, Art became an outlet for me to not compromise, but I guess roll with the punches and incorporate things that go wrong, flaws, if you will, as part of the master plan. So the the philosophy that I apply to my art and everything I do is that flaws aren't bad. There's they're something to be celebrated because on a day-to-day basis in real life, they're what makes us individuals and unique. And they can also represent themselves as strengths when you understand your flaws. Like if you have a deeply cultivated sense of self-awareness, then what may be a flaw change starts to change. It's all about framing. And I do that with my, my wood as well. Like, Most woodworkers, they want the perfect piece of wood. It can't have any cracks. It can't have character is what a lot of people call it. Like, screw that. I'm going to go get the gnarliest, nastiest piece of wood I can and take these abrasions and cracks and and flaws that tell the story of what this tree went through over the course of its life. And I'm just going to jam a bunch of turquoise in there and call it good. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and who doesn't love turquoise, especially all the podcast listeners, because New Mexico.
1: Yeah. Actually, but- I, I get my turquoise from Cimarron. I, f- I feel like I should give him a shout out. The the Rock Shop. And Cimarron yeah. is the best mineral supplier I have found.
0: Awesome. Like,
1: it's so cheap compare it to everywhere else you can go and really high quality. So go give that lady a, go give that lady a look. She's, she's very kind. Very nice.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So just for listeners, uh, what are some of the things that you, I guess, what do you make often? Like, do you have a few staple pieces that you make often or what are some of the favorite, your favorite pieces you've ever made?
1: I do have staple pieces. Um, I do a lot of bowls and, Things that can be spun quickly on the lathe, just because it's you know you got to pay the bills, you got to have those those fast items. Sure. But the things that I really enjoy are not commission based, and that that kind of falls in the line with with sculptures. Like if you don't have a time limit set, then or a a a desired outcome in place, then you can kind of get lost in the project and just let the clock roll by and come up with something super unique which is how I came up with um, my most recent series. It's like these little little mushroom dudes, little mushroom people. <laughs> um, I just got fed up with working on the lathe, decided I was going to practice carving. The coolest piece I've ever made, though, is the mushroom chessboard. I don't, I don't really have any good pictures of it, but like, I took um, a slab off a massive red oak and hogged out all the squares to inlay jet, make the black squares, and then hand-carved Every single piece, which uh, they were all little mushrooms and stuff like that it's it's really cool, yeah, uh, a buddy of mine actually ended up buying it, which is good because i can I can go look at it sometimes.
0: No kidding, you should get him to send a picture, and I'll share it on the podcast if you want. yeah, you mentioned that you like to take wood that might not otherwise you know be desired or have imperfections. Is there um, a certain type of wood that you enjoy working with the most?
1: I've been on a big juniper kick lately, uh, out of necessity. Cause uh, spoiler alert: the Southwest doesn't grow hardwoods, <laughs> so you kind of—I don't know what I was thinking, dude. Moving here as a woodworker to a place that does not grow trees, like <laughs> definitely a tactical error on my end. But uh, I've been really enjoying juniper. It's they're they're so old. Like I was talking about the story that wood tells before, but it's especially present in juniper because it takes so long for them to grow the grain's super tight and creates these crazy patterns like you've seen imagine what they look like on the outside now cut into that and the grains representing all of the twists and forms and stuff like that so as far as character goes juniper is kind of insurmountable
0: do you harvest your own wood materials
1: i do i harvest everything actually wow yeah. Good well, I, I worked as an arborist in college. Um, okay. I was a tree cli- yeah, I was a tree climber and, okay, and that's where I came by most of my material initially. I mean, it, it just, it's just going to go to the dump anyway. And that sucks. Cause you know, the tree tried really hard to be alive. The least I can do is turn its dead carcass into something kind of pretty.
0: Hey, yeah, <laughs> I follow that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, At I least uh, not what not, you know? It seems like a really good fit for you. Everything you just told me feels very innate. Like it was just in you, you know, waiting to happen. All this passion and uh, skill and knowledge about woodworking and crafting.
1: It's kind of weird you say that. Like nothing I have done ever has come easy to me, which I think is actually an advantage. Like I am not a naturally talented person. Everything is so hard. But you know, you develop perseverance through that. But woodworking is the one thing that I kind of just got. I don't know Hmm. why. I don't know why it made sense to me. But it it was it it wasn't like I was having to learn techniques and stuff. I was just allowing myself to discover them or let it let it flow out, which sounds absolutely insane. But that's what happened.
0: Once you find something that comes easier comes naturally i don't think that's insane at all i think that's just something that's that's who you are right that's the human condition to discover that i think mm-hmm. is is the work so i'm glad you discovered it for well, yourself you. me, me too yeah it's been fun. yeah good well i will definitely link red wine wood design in the show notes so everyone make sure you go check it out uh follow jeb on social media and if you uh, want to commission something. He has a lot of fun stuff out there. Or like you said, the staple the staple pieces, like the bowls are beautiful too. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: thanks for sharing about that. Do you have anyone you'd like to nominate to be on the show?
1: Ooh, that's hard.
0: Yeah, it is a hard question.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with uh, Joseph Robinson. Yeah, Joseph, Joe was not only my work crew foreman in, in 2016, but I got to grow up with him as well.
0: Awesome. I've got it written down. Do you have a piece of memorabilia from Philmont that you still keep with you and have like in your living space to this day that just means a lot?
1: Absolutely. I have a couple pieces, but the chief piece has got to be my Black Con's hard hat. That was an A-team gift they were given in 2016. But I wasn't on a team in 2016, but everybody was walking around with this super cool hard hat and I just, I won one so bad. Yeah. But come, come 2017 at all cons, they were giving one hard hat away to someone who had stood out over the course of that day. And one of the days I, I just happened to be picked and I, dude, I cried. Yeah. Like, I yeah. oh my God, I can't believe I have this. Um, I'm never getting rid of that thing. It means so much to me.
0: And last thing that I ask all my interviewees is, do you, Jeb, have an 11th essential, whether it's something practical or uh, Mm. nostalgic that you take with you mentally, physically when you're out in the wilderness?
1: (laughs) I don't know if I... Can (laughs) I say dip?
0: Yeah, sure.
1: (laughs) I always... I don't know if I'll ever get away from that stuff, but no, I've always got a can of dip when I'm hiking. It just, (laughs) it feels like home.